We are up to chapter 4, Mishnah 16. It's a really short Mishnah. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Rabbi Yehuda says, Have ye Zahir Talmud, be meticulous in study. Sheshiridas Talmud, O Ola Zadon. For a careless misinterpretation of Talmud is considered tantamount to willful transgression. So very, very short Mishnah that if someone is not meticulous about Talmud, about study, and they make a mistake, well, the mistake is actually considered as if it was a willful, wanton transgression. So before we dig into the lesson of this Mishnah, let us talk about the author of the Mishnah, Rabbi Yehuda. The most recent Mishnahs that we've had have been dealing with students of Rabbi Akiva. And as we remember, Rabbi Akiva had built a tremendous academy, 24,000 students. They all die, and he has to start from scratch. And he finds five students in the south, and those five students are the vital link that transmit Torah to the next generation. Rabbi Yehuda is one of those prized, cherished students that study Torah from Rabbi Akiva and develop their own academy and be able to perpetuate Torah to the future generations. So he is, again, a disciple of Rabbi Akiva. He was ordained by Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava. We've talked about that story many times. The Romans ban the ordainment of rabbinic ordination. Anyone who does it is going to get killed. Anyone who receives it is going to get killed. And this old rabbi finds the five students of Rabbi Akiva and ordains them before his grisly execution. Now, each one of those five students essentially are the authors of a large body of oral Torah. So the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 86a, tells us that when we have an unattributed Mishnah, it is the work of Rabbi Meir. An unattributed Tosefta, which is a Mishnahite era book of oral Torah, well, that's the product of Rabbi Nehemia. An unattributed Sifra, again, another Mishnahite era book of oral Torah, is Rabbi Yehuda, and finally, an unattributed Sifri is Rabbi Shimon. And all of them, says the Talmud, are all in accordance with Rabbi Akiva. So what this is telling us is, again, that the Torah line of transmission goes via Rabbi Akiva and his five students, and they put together the building blocks for the canonization of the Mishnah, and of course, upon that, we have the Talmud. Now, Rabbi Yehuda, the author of our Mishnah, he was known, of course, for his great scholarship, but also for his great piety. In fact, often the Talmud tells stories about anonymous protagonists, and the Talmud tells us that whenever there's a generic story of chassid echad, a pious person, Whenever it tells the story of a pious person, it doesn't tell us who that pious person was. It's actually a story about Rabbi Yehuda. He was pious, and in fact, the Talmud stresses he was pious from the beginning of his life to the end of his life, and therefore, whenever the Talmud wants to tell a story about him, it says it with a heading of there was once a pious person. So an example of that is told in the book of Brachos, page 32b. It tells there was once a pious person. And again, anonymous pious person, author of Mishnah Rabbi Yehuda. And he was praying along the way. Normally, all things being equal, you'd like to pray in a designated place to prayer, like a shul, or even if it's in your house, you have a designated corner where you would pray. 
Well, what if someone happens to be on the road? They're traveling and the time to pray has arrived. They're not by any town or civilization or city. So they just have to stop and pray along the side of the road. So this pious person is praying. And guess who shows up? A Roman nobleman. A Roman minister. And he sees the old rabbi praying. So he walks over to him and says, Hi, how are you? Shalom, peace be upon you. He greets him. And of course, the rabbi's faced with the dilemma. You're talking to God. And suddenly, you have a an important minister who has police power, who could do whatever he wants to you, and he's coming and saying hi to you. So should you interrupt your prayer and say, you know, greet the person in response, or should you ignore them and just pray? So he decided to continue praying. And this minister gets a little antsy. So he waits until the great rabbi finishes praying. And after the rabbi finishes praying, he starts berating him. And he tells him, you're an empty person. You're a fool. Why? Doesn't it say in your Torah? And he quotes a verse in Torah. The verse says, be very careful. Guard your life. Guard your soul. I asked you, I greeted you with the greetings of peace be upon you. And you didn't respond. Don't you know that if I cut off your head with a sword, no one will defend you? There'll be no repercussions. I'll have total immunity. What were you thinking? So the rabbi responded to him. He says, let me explain myself. Suppose there was the emperor here. Suppose a king a flesh and blood is here. And I'm in an audience with the king. And you come over. You're a minister, high-ranking minister, but you're not the king. You're not the emperor. You're not the Caesar. And suppose you come and you greet me while I'm in the audience with a human king. Should I interrupt myself? Would you interrupt yourself? Would you interrupt the meeting, the audience with the king to go greet someone who greets you? Of course not. Well, if you did, what would they do? They cut off my head. So he says, listen, I'm I'm in an audience with God, a human king. He's around today. He's got power today. Tomorrow he's in the grave. And still, you're telling me, you're testifying to me that it would be inappropriate to interrupt your audience with a human king, certainly if I am in an audience with Almighty God, who does not have any term limits, is alive forever, all the more so I should not interrupt my audience with God to greet you, to respond to you, even though you may be an important minister. And this argument was found convincing, and indeed, the Roman minister let him off and said, go home, you're okay. So again, this is an example of of his piety where he truly visualized prayer with God as an audience with the Almighty, with creator of heaven and earth. And therefore, he had the reverence and the presence that was at least equivalent to that of an audience with a human king. And therefore, he made the calculation, I'm not going to interrupt that, even if some some minister wants to get my attention. Now, beyond his piety, Rabbi Yehuda's Torah accomplishments are astonishingly prolific. In the Mishnah, he's mentioned hundreds and hundreds of times. All over the Talmud, all over the Halachic debates, all over the Agadic, the more philosophical debates, he is 
everywhere in the Talmud. So again, it's important to note that in Judaism, in Torah, when we view someone as a Torah scholar, invariably they're going to be someone who has both, both piety, righteousness, also Torah greatness, Torah scholarship. Now there's one very unusual story related to Rabbi Yehuda that we have to discuss. And we've discussed the story in the past, but we've talked about a different player in this particular story. And that's the story that is brought in the book of Talmud of Shabbos, page 33b, where it tells of a discussion that happened amongst various sages. And they were discussing the Romans. And Rabbi Yehuda, the author of our Mishnah, initiated the discussion by saying, how praiseworthy are these Romans? Look what they've done for us. They've established marketplaces and bridges and bathhouses. They've really built up the infrastructure of Judea, of the land of Israel. We have to thank them. So the other rabbi who was present, Rabbi Yossi, another student of Rabbi Akiva, he was quiet. He had no opinion of the matter. And comes along Rabbi Shimon, a third member of this triumvirate, and he responds. He says, well, everything they did was for themselves. They only built... The marketplaces to have brothels. They only built the, the bathhouses to, to have pleasure, their own personal pleasure. And the reason why they built bridges was solely to be able to collect the tolls. And eventually the conversation became known to the Roman authorities. And they decided there would be Yehuda who praised the Romans. He's going to be promoted. And therefore in the academy, the first speaker, the speaker of the house, the head of the speakers, was Rabbi Yehuda. The Romans enforced his promotion. Rabbi Yossi, who was quiet, who was neutral on this subject, he was forced into exile, and Rabbi Shimon, who disparaged the Romans, he was given a death sentence, which he dodged in the cave. And the question that the commentaries asked, wait a minute, Rabbi Shimon is apparently the hero of the story, but what about Rabbi Yehuda? Why does he apparently seem to be kowtowing to the Romans? And in fact, the commentaries note that the Talmud elsewhere, in the book of Avodah Zarah, right in the beginning, the Talmud tells that in the future, the Almighty is going to give reward for those who uphold the Torah. And the Romans are going to come and they're going to say, even though we didn't study Torah, we did everything that we can to facilitate Torah. You know what we did? We built bathhouses and we built bridges and we established marketplaces. And we did all of that to facilitate the Jewish people's studies, Torah, studies of Torah. And therefore, we too should get a portion in the Torah study reward that you have planned for the Jewish people. And what's the Almighty going to respond? The Almighty is going to respond precisely with the argument of Rabbi Shimon. Bathhouses, that was for your own pleasure. Marketplaces to put brothels there. Bridges, you want to collect the tolls. And he's thus going to discredit the lobbying effort of the Romans. So how is it possible Behuda seems to praise the Romans? So the commentaries note that if you examine the story, he doesn't really praise them. He just delineates what they did. And he says their deeds are nice, but it's not necessary. He's not making an evaluation of the righteousness, the morality of the Romans. That's the answers that they give. But I think it does show 
certainly a different approach that Rabbi Yudah had to Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon was more of like a no-holds-barred, kind of a fiery personality who's always going to kind of attack injustice, attack immorality when he sees it. Rabbi Huda was more of a, I would say, pragmatic, political player who was able to see the good in the Romans, of course, not ignoring the bad, but able to evaluate it in a way that is more, I would say, tasteful for the Romans. He was able to be a little bit more adroit in uh, in addressing that thorny issue. And I think it's interesting. And we see Rabbi Kiva, and he has 24,000 students, he loses them. And he has five students, and all of them are Torah giants. And all of them are going to establish their academies of their own. Each one of these students has their own academy. Each one of them focuses on a different area of, of oral Torah and, and codifies a book of oral Torah. But each one of them is different. And each one of them has slightly different attitudes. And each one of them operate differently. And each one of them manage their academies differently as well. And it's interesting, Rabbi Yehuda, he has his own academy. And the Talmud gives a story in the book of Kedusha, page 52b, about what happened when Rabbi Meir passed away. So, of course, these five students, according to one opinion, essentially six students, these five or six students, they have their academies, their academies grow, and they each kind of take upon, take on the personality of their leader, their founder, and Rabbi Meir passes away. So his students are looking around to find another academy to go join. So they come to the academy of Rabbi Huda. And Rabbi Huda makes the declaration, no, no, no. I don't want any of Rabbi Meir's students to join me. They have their own style of study and they're very aggressive and they're very disputatious and they're going to come cause me problems. They let them find a different academy to join. And Talmud says that indeed they weren't allowed in, but one of the students managed to elbow to sneak in. He snuck in and he managed to kind of voice his opinion in a halakhic debate. I think it's interesting to think about that world, these great sages, each one of them with their own personality, with their own attitude, and developing uh, their own academies, their own students, and Torah thus flourishing. Now, there's an interesting debate in the Talmud. It's interesting, again, there's so many stories that we could have picked about Rabbi Yehuda, so we only picked uh, a few of them to be able to get a flavor of his personality. But this is a very interesting debate that the Talmud presents in the book of Tzubas, page 17a. How do you dance in front of a bride? Of course, there's a mitzvah for us to celebrate a wedding, to celebrate a marriage. So there's a bride there. So we want to dance in front of her. Well, how do we do it? So it comes along to the academy of Beis Shammai. And Beis Shammai, they say it the way it is. And they say, we say the praises that are fitting for the bride. So if she's really beautiful, we say she's really beautiful. What a beautiful bride you have. And if she's not so beautiful, then we don't say that. We're more precise, shall we say, in how we treat the bride. Comes along Base Hill, comes along the Academy of Hill, and they say, no, regardless of the objective beauty of the particular bride, we say, Kala Noevachasuda. She is a beautiful and righteous bride. So comes along Bay Shammai, the Academy of Shammai, say, wait a minute. What if she is lame? She's crippled. She's blind. She's ugly. 
What do we do then? How could you possibly declare that she's beautiful? Doesn't the Torah say that you should distance yourself from falsehood? You shouldn't lie? Why are you lying? So Basila responded, and they said, well, what if you have someone who, who makes a purchase, buys an item, and he brings it home? What's the appropriate way to relate to that purchase? Do you say, well, that was a, you know, you, you bought a lemon. You bought a terrible item. Of course not. After the person made the purchase, you want to make him feel good about it. And therefore, yes, the bride, how does she look? What's her, what's her qualities? Maybe they're a little bit lackluster, but your job is to try to elevate that in the eyes of the groom. And your attitude should be one which is involved with society. Try to improve society. That's the response of Beis Hillel. And the Talmud gives a story about Rabbi Yehuda. Whenever he would go to a wedding, he would take flowers and he would dance in front, in front of the bride and groom and he would declare that this is a beautiful and righteous bride. I thought that was a nice, uh, poignant story and one that does, I think, help round out our image of this great sage. Of course, it's important to stress these sages were such titans that we're just getting a small flavor, but I think that does give us a flavor of who we're speaking about. Talmud also tells that he was very poor. In fact, him and his wife had only one coat that they would share. So whenever she would go out to the market, she would wear this coat. Whenever he would go study, he would wear the coat. They would, they would have to share their one uh, thick coat to provide warmth. So they tried to arrange their schedules so that whenever one of them was home, the other one could go out and vice versa. Once there was a special event that was declared. And because this was not in the schedule, this was not in the calendar, he wasn't able to go out because his wife was using the coat at that time. And the sages heard about this and they couldn't believe it. One of the great sages of our people, so poor, we're going to send him a special coat. So they prepare this amazing cloak and they send it to Rabbi Yehuda. And Rabbi Yehuda responds, I'm not interested. I don't want your gift. In fact, he tells the messenger who comes with the coat, he says, Look under my carpet. They used to sit on carpets, mats. Look under the carpet. So he puts, picks up the carpet and the Almighty made a miracle. It was filled with gold coins. And he says, you know what? I don't want those gold coins because I don't want the Almighty to give me a down payment on my heavenly reward. I don't want it. And you know what else I don't want? I don't want your fancy cloak. Bring it back to where it came from. And Talmud also adds that this poverty extended to his students that during his era, there was such poverty that six students would use one blanket. They would all sleep under one blanket because they would have to huddle together to stay warm because they didn't have enough blankets for each individual. And finally, I want to share a little bit of a perspective that Rabbi Yehuda seems to embody in the Talmud. We've spoken about Rabbi Shimon in the past, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and he's in fact the author of the upcoming Mishnah. And it's interesting to note where you have two students of Rabbi Akiva with such differing philosophies about Torah study. Of course, all of them value Torah study as, you know, the greatest ideal, but Rabbi Shimon, he was someone who said, you study Torah and you don't get a job. 
That's, that's what you have to do. And who's going to provide for you and your family? Well, you leave it to God. That's Rabbi Shimon's attitude. Rabbi Yehuda seems to have a different attitude. I think one that probably jives better with, with our perspectives. He taught that if there's, let's say, a funeral, there's a funeral. Do you stop studying to go participate in the funeral? Or do you stop studying to go participate in a wedding? Of course, both of those are mitzvahs. It's a mitzvah for us to participate in a funeral and in a wedding, but Torah is a greater mitzvah. What do you do? So Rabbi Yehuda was of the opinion that you do stop Torah study to partake in those life cycle events. He was also someone who advocated for working. In fact, Talmud gives a story that he was once dragging something with him on his shoulder. He was taking like a chair or something like that on his shoulder to sit on. And he announced, when someone works hard, when someone labors, it's a great thing. It provides honor for the person who does it. And finally, Rabbi Huda taught that someone is not only obligated to have a way to make an honest living themselves, they also have to teach their son a trade or a craft. It's so imperative to teach your son how to make a living that if you don't do it, it's the equivalent of you teaching him to be a thief. That's from the Talmud, the book of Kedushin, page 29b. So again, I think it's a a healthy attitude to, to note that in Judaism, the great sages, the titans of our history are not necessarily cookie cutter. In fact, they're not. They're decidedly not cookie cutter. Each one of them is different. Each one of them has their own perspective. And that is a beautiful thing. We don't believe in, in, you know, monolithic uniformity of thought and of perspective. Each one of them has the different personalities and could teach the same Torah with their own angel, with their own perspective. Now, Rabbi Huda teaches us in our Mishnah that we have to be very meticulous in Torah study because ordinarily, if you make a mistake, well, mistakes are forgiven by God. But if you make a mistake with Torah study, you make a misinterpretation of Torah, that is elevated, that is made tantamount to a willful transgression. And the idea that the commentaries explain over here is that with Torah, if we don't review it, if we don't study it consistently, not only are we going to forget it, but we're not going to understand its depths. Torah is very deep. And we could kind of study in a very superficial level. We could kind of graze the, the, the absolute surface of Torah. And we seem to know it, but you know what? We don't understand it on a deep level. And certainly, the next day, if you ask us, it kind of becomes fuzzy and opaque and amorphous in our mind. That's the incorrect way of studying. The correct way to study it, study deeply and to study it with engaging our entire mind and that will succeed in etching it into our memories. Forgetfulness is ever-present. We have also a tendency to not engage our intellect, our mind to the deepest level. What do they say? They say like uh, the humans use 10% of their brain. I don't know if that's true. But I would imagine that there's definitely a part of deep thinking that we are definitely or we tend to definitely neglect by default. 
And therefore, when someone makes a mistake, when someone makes a misjudgment, most likely that was the result of them not studying deeply initially, not studying profoundly, not studying consistently, and not reviewing and repeating it until it was really firmly affixed in their mind. And consequently, even though what actually happened was a mistake, but it was a mistake that was rooted in something that was a you know willful misappropriation of, of how we're supposed to study. You know, personally, I think I make a mistake in this. Whenever I teach, I'm always trying to give new material. And I don't want to kind of churn the same stuff. I don't want to rely on the back catalog. I always kind of force myself to try to teach new things. Maybe that's a mistake. Maybe I should be reinforcing some of the same ideas again and again and again. So that way I'll remember it. So that way everyone will remember it. So these ideas will become deeply ingrained within us. I don't know. Maybe it's a mistake. Or maybe we should all be listening to the podcasts twice or three times. I actually started this new policy whenever I listen to Torah podcasts, which of course are highly advisable. I try to listen to them twice because I find that listening to them just once, a lot of the ideas kind of get lost, fall between the cracks. I don't remember them. I didn't understand it the first time so clearly. I'm busy sweeping the floor, doing something in the house. I'm listening to podcasts. And it's very easy to be entertained and to get the general gist of what the message is, but I don't know it deeply. I can't repeat it. I don't really acquire those messages. So that's, I think, a a good takeaway. So we see this idea that, that forgetfulness is the default, the norm. Not understanding things on a deep level is also the norm. We also have a tendency to follow, to, to understand just the first way we understand it and to not reconsider it. And therefore, mistakes are not guiltless. Rather, they stem from a lack of preparation, a lack of recognition of human fallibility. And therefore, it's not exactly a mistake. It's closer to being negligence. And therefore, we have this very, very harsh statement. When you make a mistake in Torah... It seems like it's a mistake, but actually it's closer to being a gross negligence. Now, one of the commentaries here brings a devastating example of the effects of a minor imprecision in teaching. This is from the Talmud book of Bava Basra, page 21a into 21b. And it tells the story of Yoav, the commander of David's army. And the Talmud begins with a with a question, a dilemma. Suppose there are two teachers. One of them teaches a lot of content, but it's not exactly precise. And the second one teaches not so much content, but whatever they do teach, it is razor-sharp precision. Which one of those teachers are favorable for children? You have two children, two teachers, teacher A, teacher B. One teacher teaches a lot, but it's, you know, there's some mistakes there. And another one teaches a little, but it's it's perfect. So the Talmud brings two opinions. The first opinion is, you go to the teacher who teaches a lot. What about the mistakes? The mistakes will fix themselves. Eventually, you'll be able to weed out the mistakes. That's the first opinion. The second opinion is, no. 
you have to hire the teacher that teaches precisely because once a mistake is taught, once an error is absorbed, it's very hard for it to be unseated. Once someone has an opinion that's formed, they've adopted it, to actually remove that, to excise bad opinions is indeed very difficult. The Talmud gives a story. The story is told about Yoav. Yoav is the commander of David's army, and they are engaging in all kinds of wars with the Jewish people's enemies. And one of the enemies of the Jewish people, of course, our eternal nemesis, the nation of Amalek. And for six months, Yoav is trying to eradicate this nation. But he kills only the males. And we know the law states, you got to kill everyone. It's the one nation that we're told that is beyond the pale, totally helpless. You have to get rid of this nation. But Yov only kills the males. Well, you would imagine the people that you would think would be the enemy combatants. And then he finds out of his mistake and he says, wait a minute. The verse says, Timche et Zecher Amalek. Eradicate the memory of Amalek. But the word Zecher, which means the memory, could also be read as Zachar, which means male. You could have read the verse, eradicate the males of Amalek. So he says, wait a minute, I remember when I was in school, I was a little school child. And my teacher, he said, Timche, or he taught it in a way that made me think I should eradicate the males and only the males. So the mistake that I did is attributed to him. So he goes back home and he finds his teacher. And he asks his teacher, well, how do you read this verse? So he responds by telling him, well, the verse says, Timchat Zechar Amalek, get rid of the memory of Amalek. He says, but I remember you teaching Zachar Amalek, which means the males of Amalek. So Yoav is so incensed, is so angry at his teacher, he pulls out a sword. And he says to him, okay, I'm going to kill you now because you're guilty by your imprecise teaching. The Talmud actually brings a debate that he actually kill him or not. It's not so clear. But the Talmud uses this story as an example of how there could be very stiff ramifications and lasting ramifications for someone who is taught imprecisely as a child. So then we see someone may have made, mis- may have made a mistake, but it's very important to teach things accurately. I remember having a debate with someone, an individual, who spent many, many years in yeshiva, but was espousing things that I believe were absolute heresy. Why? Why was he espousing heresy? Because he misunderstood or was not taught to him accurately initially. And I couldn't believe it. Someone spent maybe 10 years in yeshiva. They should get a very good education, right? That's what you would imagine. And they should know the basics of Jewish faith, you would imagine. But somehow, the message was corrupted in a way that this person was saying, you know, God is everywhere. So therefore, he pointed to this table. This table, it's it's kind of, it has God in it. Or I don't remember his exact words. It is God. Something like outrageous. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Because, of course, we believe 
that the Almighty, he is the force behind everything. And therefore, there's, so to speak, the spark or the influence of the Almighty. If not for the Almighty willing something to exist, it wouldn't exist. That we believe. But to say that this table is God, we say that that is heresy. And that, I would imagine, stems from faulty teaching or imprecise teaching. There is a song that I very much loathe that is oftentimes taught to kids. Hashem is here. Hashem is there. Hashem is truly everywhere. Up, up, down, down, right, left, all around. Here, there, and everywhere. That's where he can be found. Maybe this song led that uh, young uh, former yeshiva student astray. Who knows? It's possible. But my position is, why do we make up songs about matters of theology? Maybe we should just rely on what the sources actually say. And if you look at what the sources say, they don't say, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. It's not what they say. What they do say is something to the effect of, in the Talmud, the book of Brachos, page 10a, I'll give you the source. I'm not going to make up lyrics myself. Talmud says that the Almighty sees everything, but he himself is unseen. Maybe that doesn't rhyme as nicely, but that's a good lesson to teach the kids. Because you know what? If you teach them what is actually true, you're not going to corrupt them, and they won't espouse heresy after spending a decade in yeshiva. That's my position. I think that's in line with, with this particular teaching. Don't teach things that are imprecise because they may stick. And if they stick, you may have someone who unwittingly, unknowingly, is a heretic or believes things that are actual heresy because they weren't taught precisely. And therefore, my advice on this matter is that especially with matters that relate to 13 principles of faith, that if you don't believe it or you don't believe it correctly, you're, you're just disinclusive the Jewish people. It's really severe. Just rely on what the Torah tells us. Look at the Rambam. Look at the Talmud. Look at the prayer books. And just say that. And keep it simple. Marant has thus concluded. We may revisit it. Anyhow, that's uh, that's my thoughts. But there's another example that I saw in the Talmud about this idea. It's talking about a very interesting backstory to this teaching. Rabbi Akiva, we know, was imprisoned for teaching Torah during the Hadrianic persecution. And, of course, his students were very disappointed that their teacher is not available to them. So the Talmud tells us, in the book of Sachem, page 112a, it tells us that Rabbi Shimon Barichai, Rabbi Shimon, one of the students of Rabbi Akiva, went to visit him in prison and said to him, we need you to teach us. Come teach us. So he says, I, I, can't, I can't teach you. I can't teach you because I'm, I'm in prison and you're also going to end up in prison. Anyhow, the Talmud says that he managed to convince him to teach him. And he taught him five different things. He taught him, the first idea was that if you want to hang yourself, find a tall tree. What does that mean? What that means is, if you want to teach something and you want people to accept it, then you should find someone really big, a tall tree, so to speak, to uh, to source it from. If I come and say, you know, an outrageous idea, you say, okay, Walby, what do you know? 
But if I say, well, the Talmud says this, Rabbi Ativa says this, the Rambam says this, then okay, I'm, I'm hanging myself, so to speak, on a tall tree. That's his first idea. And a second idea, which is relevant to our Mishnah, is that when you teach your son, teach him from a book that has the correct text. And we know today, of course, we have printing and therefore it's very easy to find authoritative texts. But in the past, everything would have to be cap- copied by hand. So invariably, people would make mistakes. You copy all of Talmud. That's a lot of, a lot of writing. It's very hard to make sure that every letter is accurate. You have Rava, one of the sages in the Talmud. You have Rabba, one of the sages in the Talmud. And they're spelled almost identically. So is the text Rava or is it Rabba? Two great sages, different people. Names are very similar. And very often you'll have variant texts of the Talmud where one text will say it's Rabba and one will say it's Rava. And of course, there's been a lot of effort over the last several hundred years to weed out those mistakes. Says Rabbi Kiva to Rabbi Shimon, when you teach your son, it's very important that you teach him from a corrected text. Why? And he gives the same answer. Once a mistake enters, it's very hard for it to be dislodged. And then he gives us some other interesting advice. One of them is actually quite memorable, not related at all to our subject, but it's memorable nonetheless. It's talking about not to marry divorcees in the life of the ex-husband. Why? And it gives something, again, very uh, memorable. It tells us that when two people who were previously married, when they uh, consummate their marriage, there's actually four people in the bed. That's the words of the Talmud, not my words. Because everyone brings their baggage and their history with them to their next marriage. The Talmud also says some interesting things that uh, you'll have to look at it yourself to discover. Pretty interesting, I may add. So again, book up Sachem, page 112a. Enjoy. So how do we make sure that we follow this dictum? How do we make sure that we don't make mistakes in Torah? So I think the first thing we've said is constantly reviewing. Moreover, studying from each person. We've seen that ideal in already, that if you want to become wise, you have to study from each person. If something doesn't make sense, you ask questions. Very often I get questions and people precede their question with a preamble, this is probably a dumb question, but let me ask you the question. And by the way, I point out that when people begin their question, this is probably a silly question, and they ask a question, they always ask the best questions. But there is no silly questions. Because if something, something, something doesn't make sense, how do you expect it to stick? How do you expect it to influence you? How do you expect it to resonate within you? If it doesn't make sense, if you have a question, something is not clear, something was not precise, something is or appears to be illogical, it's not going to sit well. And if it's not going to sit well, it's eventually going to be discarded. The brain has a very good file clearing system. And unless we really take the Torah and say, this is important, this matters, unless we train our brain to say, this is something that you better absorb, it's going to discard it. And if the goal of Torah is to be able to absorb the Almighty's wisdom, we have to make sure that we're approaching in a way that's going to be successful. If there's something that doesn't make sense, we have to ask questions. 
If we study it once, we study it again. Maybe we take notes. Maybe we write down the bullet points. Maybe we develop some scheme that we constantly revisit. You know, the Torah, five books of Moses, every year we review it. Why? You know, I've been around now for 33 years. Haven't read the Torah 33 times, but every year they read the Torah. Why? The answer is because it's important. And it's important. We have to review it. And if we don't review it, we're going to forget it. And if we forget it, then we've lost the meaning or the, the potential that the Torah could have done to us. Maybe we can add another way to ensure, to reinforce our study is to actually become a teacher, to teach. When someone studies, it doesn't necessarily demand that they actually know, they understand. They have to learn to articulate it. If you could articulate something, that's another level of understanding. If you could teach it over to other people and it made sense to them, that's even yet a higher level of study. We could also say, or suggest potentially, if someone writes, if you write something, writing is a great way to weed out the things that are a little bit shaky, a little bit vague, a little bit unclear. It's another great way to do that. So again, we're told very startling here in our Mishnah, if we make a mistake, it's actually not a mistake. It's willful negligence because we should have known ahead of time, we should have been forewarned that such a mistake is liable to happen unless we set up, we design our study in a way that it's going to prevent those things from happening. Now, on the happy flip side, I want to introduce you all to the Talmud, the book of Bamatia, page 33b. It's speaking about a verse in Isaiah. And the verse in Isaiah tells us, that the Torah scholars, when they make a mistake in Torah, even though it's a mistake, it's considered as if it is a willful, negligent error. But the simpletons, the regular folk, the common people, the lay people, when they actually make a willful mistake, it's considered as if it's an accident, as if, as if it's as if it was done unintentionally. So I think that's comforting to us, that the more we scale up our Torah scholarship, so to speak, the more precise we have to be. But thank God we're ignoramuses. And thank God we have this Talmud. When when the Almighty says, well, why do you make this mistake in Torah? You say, well, the Talmud says that ignoramuses, even if we make willful, negligent mistakes, it's we get off easy, so thank God we'll get off easy. But still, I think the, the lesson is powerful. We are fallible. We are designed to make mistakes. We're designed to not remember. We're designed that unless something, you know, is, is emotionally, is intellectually critical to us, we're going to forget it. And if we truly want to absorb the teaching of Torah, we should be aware of that, be aware of the shortcomings that we have, prepare for it, and then the Torah will indeed stick, we'll remember it, it will resonate, and it will change our lives.